my, good morning, how are you? Good, good, it is good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Pastor Kevin, if I haven't had the chance to greet you, um, I hope I get the opportunity at uh, some point this morning. Uh, thank you for being with us here today at Restoration Church, um, it's, it's such a joy. Um, I was thinking about this, how many of you guys grew up watching like Disney movies growing up? And you saw the fairy tales, the, the Disney fairy tales. They do this weird thing where nowadays you can't find all the movies to buy. Like they only release them in certain times. But do you guys remember this one uh, where, where the queen was in front of the mirror? Remember what she said? Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? You guys, you guys remember that one, right? You guys familiar with it. And remember everything went really good when she was looking in the mirror until... Snow White appeared. And then it all went downhill from there. And we know that she ended up being called the evil queen. And, and she did something really bad to Snow White. And it's been a while since I saw the movie. So I'm missing some of those other details. But I know that's how it started out. Mirror, mirror on the wall. And the queen wants to know, who's the fairest of them all? How do I rank amongst everybody else? You know, we still do that today, don't we? We still go in front of the mirror. And say, mirror, mirror on the wall. I don't think we use a fairest. I don't think that's one of the words that we use today. But maybe who's the, the handsomest? Who's the most beautiful? Who's, who's the funniest? Who's, who, how do I rank amongst everybody else? You know, I, I saw this little caption this week about men and women and the difference of men and women looking in a mirror. Now, you might be surprised to learn this, that men, men look at the mirror 25% more than women do. Can you believe that? Men Literally, look at the mirror 25% more than what you want to know why they do that. We've got a little graphic here. Show this graphic. Here's what a man sees in the mirror. And here's what the woman sees in a mirror. All right. Men, we're optimists. Like we look at the mirror and we see something great. Women look in the mirror and they're uh, glass half empty kind of people. They look and see the worst. And, you know, for me, I think, well, why do I look in the mirror? I mean, I always want to look at the mirror because this is what I see every time I look in the mirror. It's just so amazing. Like, that's what I see every day I look in the mirror. Like, why would you not want to look at that all the time? Can you blame me? <laughs> but why is this a thing? Why is this a thing that, that maybe it's not a mirror. Maybe it's looking into Facebook. Maybe it's looking. Why is it that we're always looking into something else to kind of get an idea of who we are? You know, kind of our identity. It comes down to identity. Like, we want to go and we want to look in the mirror to see, are we all put together? Do we look right? We want to go and we want to go on social media because we want to see what other people are doing to see how we compare. To see, okay, well, this is what they've got going on. I've got to do something so I can keep up with them and, and be like them and, and whatever the case may be. Why do we, why do, we do that? Because somehow we got our identity mixed up. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons. People say, well, you know, our identity is so mixed up and they blame it on social media. You know, they'll blame it on, 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 the, on the TV shows and the access we have to stars and the newspapers and, and the people magazines. And we have all this access to all these, these amazing, beautiful people and we compare ourselves with them. But I don't think the problem can be social media. I don't think the problem is the media, the, the movies. I think the problem, it comes down to our heart. Because I think from the very beginning, I think we've had this issue where um, our heart wants to compare ourselves to other people and see how we rank. In fact, when, when, when God was giving us the Ten Commandments, remember the Tenth Commandment? Thou shall not covet. Okay? 
Covet means what we do is we look at what somebody else has. We say, man, I wish I had what they had. I wish I was a little bit more. And we we can take this and and attribute this to our identity. We look at what somebody else has. We look at at the way they look. And we say, man, I'm going to be acceptable. I've got to be like that. And we begin to, to take this and allow this to influence our identity. And this is, this is how it plays out. Men, what's the first thing you do when you meet another man? What's the first question you ask? You might ask what your name is first, but, but the second thing you do is what do you do, right? What do you do? What, what, what's your job? What's your, what's your occupation? And we, we allow that to define us. And so somebody would say, well, I'm an engineer. Well, I'm, I'm a construction worker. And there's a little bit of an identity tied into what you do. And, and this, for men, when things are going good, when, like, when your work is going good, when you're moving up, you walk around and you've got that little bit of swagger. You know, you're kind of like, man, I'm feeling pretty good. But when things are going bad, like everything's falling apart. You know, and, and so this is, this is what we do. Our identity affects us. And so, man, this is where we want to we wanna look and see, well, this is what, you know, uh, this guy, he got this new car. And, man, you begin to begin to, to long after a newer car because you're like, look at their car. I want to be like them. I want to show that I'm equal to them. I'm better than them, so I want the newer car. And that's why, men, when we go fishing, right? When we go fishing, we caught a fish this big, right? Because it's our identity. We want to define ourselves by, by how other people see us and by what they do. Men, don't lie. I know you do that. I know you lie about your fish. And I know some of you are in here and you're saying, well, this isn't me. I'm too humble. I don't ever uh, define myself. You know what? I don't believe that one bit. Because you know what happens is is I get the privilege to go to these pastors' conferences, okay? And these are a bunch of Christian pastors. And you know the first question they will ask somebody in a Christian pastor's conference? How big is your church? Why do they ask that? It's all about identity. It comes back to that identity. Ladies, ladies, it's the same thing. Ladies, you allow yourself to be, to be fine by, by what you wear, by, by your looks, by the relationships around you. In fact, I keep hearing this ad on the radio. Um, I listen to a lot of sports radio, and they keep having this ad on sports radio. For ladies, you can come in and get $600 off five laser treatments, and you could look years younger. But why is that? Why do we do that? It comes down to the idea of, of perception and the idea of identity. Ladies, let me just ask you this. You don't have to verbally answer, but just process. How many times do you get sucked into social media looking to see what everybody else is doing? Because you want to know where they're at. You want to see what their kids are doing. You want to see what their house looks like. You want to see these things. Because the problem with that, the problem is, is, is we'll get sucked into social media to see what everybody else is doing. But you have to understand with social media, it's just a highlight reel. Like on social media, the only picture of your dinner that you put on Facebook is the one that's like, like Pinterest level, like, like, like this amazing dinner. Like that's the only dinner you see on Facebook, right? And so you look at this lady and she posts this amazing meal. And you're like, man, I wish, I wish I could cook like that. I wish I had the time and the skill. But the thing is, that lady only posts, she doesn't show the next night where uh, she tells her kids, you guys are having cereal, and she's in the bath drinking a glass of wine, crying watching This Is Us. Like, that is what's happening. You don't see that picture. Like, that, you don't see that picture. It's just this highlight reel that becomes this idea that we think this is what it all is, and it's not like that at all. Yet we still ask this question. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? 
And the question we have to ask is, what mirror are we really going to look into? Because there's a cultural mirror that tells us, hey, if you're going uh, to be a good person, if you're going to be, then this is what it's going to look like. But there's also this other mirror uh, of God's mirror. And the question is, which of these mirrors are we going to allow to define us? Are we going to allow the culture to define us? Or are we going to allow God to define us? And so this all comes down to this issue, this idea about identity. And this is, this is, a, this is a, a topic that has a lot of influence over many of us in here. Over our, our, our society. We have this, this obsession with identity. And we often have an unhealthy uh, view of our identity. An unbiblical view uh, of, how, of who we are. And so we're going to take an opportunity as a church for the next month to kind of wrestle with, with how do we define ourselves? Like where does our identity come from? And we're going to look at, at one chapter of the Bible, Psalm chapter 139. Um, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there, uh, Psalm 139. Um, we're going to have an opportunity to, to look into this, this chapter and really understand like how does, how does, how, where does our identity come from? Like, how do we build that sense of who we are? And, and, and instead of looking for the culture to define our identity, we're going to look and allow God's word to define our identity. And so, uh, Bible, if you have a Bible, turn to 139. Um, if, you, if you don't know where the Bible is, you don't know where Psalm 139 is, my encouragement, open your Bible to the middle of the Bible. Uh, that's probably about where Psalms is. Let's find Psalm 139. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And uh, as you're turning there, um, this chapter, Psalm 139, was written by um, King David. You might say, well, well, who's King David? Why should I listen to King David, a guy who lived, uh, you know, 2,500, 3,000 years ago? Why should I listen to him talk to me about my identity? What makes him an authority on this topic? And we've got to understand a little bit about who David is so we can understand the message he has for us. When we understand David, we know David was not a perfect man. We know David did some dumb things. Uh, we know that David, if you remember this story, David brought the, the ark, uh, the, the presence of God into Jerusalem. And remember what happened? He brings the presence of God into Jerusalem, which is a big, big thing for him. And he, 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 he skips down to his holy skibbies. He's in his holy underwear and he starts dancing down the street. Remember, his wife was like, what are you doing? People are looking at you. You can't do that. Again, his wife's saying, your identity is at stake here. And he says, no, I'm just going to dance for the Lord because I'm excited for what we've done for God. And, and so, you know, we understand that. We also know King David, uh, we know that he had the uh, affair with Bathsheba. Remember, he had this affair with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, ended up having her husband killed because he was trying to cover it up. So we know David is not a, a perfect man, but we also know a few other things about David. We know that when Samuel was a prophet, when he came to, to anoint the new king, remember he went to, to uh, Jesse's house. He said, Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the next king. So Jesse brings in uh, his sons, and, and you've got the oldest son. The oldest son is kind of, uh, you know, he's a military man. He's like, man, that would be a great king. And Samuel says, nope, that's not the king. So he says, well, I got another son. He's a valedictorian. Like, he's a smart kid. You want him to be the king. And Je Samuel looks at him and says, no, that's not the king either. Well, I've got the star athlete. You know, he was, he was the, the quarterback for the high school team. I'll bring him out. He's got to be the king. No, that's not the king either. Brings up all seven of his sons. And Samuel says, none of these are the king. Don't you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, I do have the youngest son. He's kind of the runt of the litter. He's, he's, he's the younger son that nobody really likes. And so we make him go do the medial jobs, like take care of the sheep out in the field. 
And so Samuel says, hey, bring him in. And that's who God chooses to anoint as the next king. And we have that great statement where, where Samuel says, God does not look on the outward appearance like man, but God looks at the heart. He's coming down to this idea about identity. It, is, it looks different. We understand with David and his identity, it looks different than the way our culture defines it. In fact, as Samuel was getting ready to go look for this new king, uh, what God told Samuel is he said, I want a man after mine own heart. And that becomes the identity of who David is. In fact, in, in uh, the book of Acts, um, Acts chapter 13, Paul calls uh, David that exactly that, a man after God's own heart. And so this is why when David begins to speak to us about identity, we have a reason to listen. Because he has a, a unique title that none of us have as a man after God's own heart. So we're going to allow David to speak to us about where identity comes from. So if you have a Bible, I uh, invite you Psalm 139. We'll also have the words on the screen behind me. I encourage you to follow along. If you would just do me a favor, though, let's stand up and let's read this. Uh, follow along as I read this. Psalm 139. Uh, and here's what it says, verses 1 through 6. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for the opportunity uh, to be in a place that we can open up your word and have your word speak to us. Thank you for this idea about identity. And God, I pray that you would help us to wrestle with this in the next couple of weeks. That we'd wrestle with what we allow to define us. That we would trust your word to understand that, God, it's you who define us, not anything else that we do. So God, I pray that you give us understanding even today about this idea that we can be known by you. God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would draw us, that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, and that you, you would just be with us here today, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat now. So I'm not sure if you missed it, but uh, the key word in that entire six verses is you, you see this word know a number of times. You see this word to know in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 6. Uh, you see this idea of, of knowledge in verse 6. And so this is the key word for this uh, for this passage of scripture is that you and I, we can be known by God. And that's kind of the message for today. The idea is that you and I can, can be known by God. And not just this casual, like, you know, like, like on Facebook, you've got like a thousand Facebook friends. We're not talking about a casual, I know who they are, but we can be intimately known by God. That we don't have to be fake before God. We don't have to hide before him, but that you and I can be known by God. And so there's three points we're going to see from this uh, from this uh, section of scripture today. And uh, the first one I want us to see is that God knows us just as we are. I want you to see that God knows you just as you are. Here's, here's how it starts out, verse 1. It says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Now, does that sound like a good thing to, to be searched? You know, I think about being searched, I think about going through airport security. And you always hope that uh, they do the search on the person in front of you and not wait for you, you know, because that's just awkward. Uh, but they, you know, when you hear this idea of being searched, that doesn't sound fun. doesn't sound like something we want to experience. The question is, who 
Who really knows you? Like, who really knows who you are deep down? You know, I like to think that I know my wife pretty well. We've been married for 16 years, 16, 15 years, 15 years. We've been married 15 years. Uh, I'd like to think that I know my wife pretty well. But what's amazing is, is, is the longer we've been married, I keep learning new things about her. I keep learning these amazing things. And, and even, even um, our closest human relationships, they fall short of, of this total uh, knowledge of, of another person. And it's, it, it's an incredible, and we have this incredible skill at just showing parts of ourselves to people. Where when I meet somebody, I'm going to show them a part of my life, but I'm not going to show the whole thing because I'm not really sure I want them to know the whole thing about me. And so, and so the scripture says that God searches us. And I start thinking about, you know, uh, I don't know how old you are, men, maybe you know what this is like. You think about being searched, maybe if you get to a certain age, men, Maybe you've been in this point where you're walking into the doctor's office and uh, you know the search that's coming. Am I, am, I, am I right? You know the search is coming and they're saying, just relax. It'll go much easier if you relax for me. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? We're not talking about a search like that. That's not the talk that we're, that's not the search we're looking for. See, searching, when we hear this idea of search, it implies ignorance. Like search because God doesn't know something about us. But that's not the case here in Psalm 139. We know that God is omniscient. That's one of his character qualities. He knows all things. There's no surprise to God. And so this idea about about God searching me is giving us the idea that God knows us as though he thoroughly examined us. It's giving us the idea that God knows us as he literally went to every part of us to to know who we are. That he's pried in the deepest and darkest corners of our being to know who we are. That there's nothing hidden between us and God. And what happens is sometimes, again, I think because we allow the culture to define who we are, sometimes I think we even begin to lie to ourselves about who we are. Where maybe we know deep down, hey, I'm really, I'm really an angry person, but we lie to ourselves and say, I'm not really that bad of a person. I'm not really that bad. I'm not really that angry of a person. I'm just once in a while, but I'm not that bad of a person. And I think that as David is writing this and saying, search me, oh God, perhaps David is saying, you know, God, you know, search me for my benefit. Search me uh, not for your benefit, for, for mine. He's kind of saying, God, show me myself. Like, show me myself so I can be confronted with who I really am and not just this outward appearance I try to show people. There's a guy by the name of, of Brennan Manning, and he said this, and this is important for us to hear today as we think about this idea about our identity. He said, spiritual life begins with the acceptance of our wounded self. Spiritual life begins when we can be honest with who we are deep down, not, not who we are in the public face, not who we show people, but who we are deep down. That's where spiritual life truly begins. And so, and so this whole idea, these couple verses, is going to be about how God knows us, and that God knows us just as we are. God knows everything about us. And to show this, um, uh, David's going to use a, a figure of speech called a merism. A merism takes two polar opposites, and they're used to, to give this idea about, um, uh, about totality. That, that God knows everything. So it's kind of like this. If, if we were to say that, that God owns everything from the North Pole to the South Pole, you get the idea that God owns everything in the middle. There's nothing in there that God doesn't own. And that's, that's a merism. You use polar opposites to be able to say the totality of everything that God knows. And so you're going to see this played out in verse 2. 
uh, David writes and says, God, you know when I sit down and you, you know when I rise up. Given this idea that God knows all of life's activities. God knows everything that we're doing. God knows what we do at work. God knows what we do in the car, on the commute, when we think we're all alone and we're picking our nose. Why do we do that? We all do that. But God knows all those things. God knows what you do at the gym. God knows what you do at the grocery store. God knows what's happening on your vacation. God knows everything that happens through all of our day's activities. Verse 3, you see this other merism uh, where David says, You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. Again, this idea that God knows every step that we make. God knows every movement. Nothing is hidden from him in our life. And he carries a different thought. Verse 2, we kind of skipped over it. Verse 2, he says, you discern my thoughts from afar. This idea that God doesn't just know what we do. God also even knows what we think. It says he discerns. It means he's kind of like, he kind of sifts. It's kind of like when you're getting ready to make your coffee and you put your coffee in the filter. Uh, it separates the, the liquid from, from the grounds. Like God looks at our thoughts and doesn't just know our thoughts. He knows the reason why we think those thoughts. Like that's just crazy to think that God knows us like that intimately. That he knows that much about us. He says he's, he discerns our thoughts from afar. And this is a weird thing. We've done this from the foundation of man. Where sometimes we feel like we can hide from God. Sometimes we feel like we can run away from God. And if we hide from, them, from God, then maybe God won't see everything that we do. He won't know everything. I mean, this happens as a pastor. You know, people see the pastor coming up and they're like, Oh, snap, we haven't been in church in a while. We're going to duck away hoping he doesn't see us. And we, we kind of do that same thing with God. I mean, you think about even from the very beginning, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. And they had the, the, the one tree. Don't eat the fruit from the one tree. And what did Adam and Eve do? Of course, they ate the fruit from the one tree. And what happened after that? They, re- they were ashamed. They realized they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And they went and they tried to hide from God. Try to hide themselves from God. And we've been doing it ever since then. We try and hide areas of our life. We try and hide from God. And, and, and what this is saying is... is, is is when you discern our thoughts from afar, even when we try and run away from God, God knows. There's no escaping his knowledge of who we are, of what we think, of what we do. There is no escape from that. Similar idea about God knowing our thoughts. Verse 4, he says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God not only knows our thoughts, he knows our words before we even speak them. You ever blurt something out? And like surprise yourself, like where did that come from? Like, like I had one of those things happen last week and, and you know, it was really a fun week on Easter, but, but stuff just kept rolling out of my mouth and I don't know where it came from. And so at one point I said, my wife and I, we've got five kids, we're like rabbits. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, Sam, that probably, you know, inappropriate thing to say at church. Pray for my wife, you need to keep her in your prayers. But, but that's where, like, like it was a surprise that came, I don't know where it came from. It wasn't a surprise to God. Like God knew before I even spoke it, before I even came out of my mouth, God knew it was coming. And I'm sorry for that. I got to say that. I'm sorry I said that. But it's not a surprise to God. So what happens is we realize these things. And so we, we begin to, you know, try and show just the good parts of our life. 
Or when we're around other people, when we're on social media, when we're living our life, we want to show them the good parts of our life. And, and, and so we only become partly known by people. We aren't ever fully known by people. And this is where we can put a smile on our face. We can put our good Sunday clothes on and go to church on Sunday. But the reality is when we come together on Sunday, this is the reality I know. It's underneath the Sunday clothes, underneath the smiling faces, underneath the faces that we put on to take on the world, I know that there are some very hard situations going on in life right now. I know there are very less tidy lives in this room than what we can look and just see. Nothing can be hidden. And we want to think, I don't want anyone to know the real me. But David just said, God knows who we are in the deepest, darkest corners of our heart and of our mind, uh, of our identity. And I want us to, to grasp this idea and understand like exactly how God knows you. God knows you deep down just as you are. There's nothing hidden from God. He doesn't just see the person that you show everybody else. God knows you deep down. Those things that you are afraid to speak, the things that you don't want to acknowledge, God knows those things about you. Question is, you, you begin to hear this and understand this, like, how does that make you feel? Like, like, does that make you feel happy that God knows you that deep down? Or maybe, maybe you're like, man, I feel a little bit scared. Like, God knows, like, like everything about me. Uh, maybe I feel a little bit embarrassed. Like, God, I'm sorry I did that. I'm so, I don't know where that came from, God. Maybe you begin to feel guilty. Man, if we're going to be completely honest with ourselves, how many of us would feel shame when we understand that God knows us that intimately? I mean, that's where I go when I think about God knowing me that intimately. I feel just shame. See, shame and guilt are, are two very different words. They're similar, but they mean different things. In fact, shame is talked about ten times more in the Bible than guilt. See, guilt is you and I going into court. And guilt is all the evidence is placed before uh, the judge. The judge stamps guilty, and then he seals all those bad things so nobody else can see it. But shame... Shame is kind of like WikiLeaks went through and found all your old emails, even if they were on the private server. They found all your old emails. They found all your old text messages. They found all your old phone calls. They found all the websites you visited. They found everything about you. And they went and they posted that on the internet for everybody to see. The world could see every detail about you. That's where shame comes in. You begin to feel shame because of that. And David... David knows this. David is saying, this is how God knows us. God knows everything about us. There's nothing hidden from God's presence. You say, nothing? Like, what about that one time in college I did the one thing? You know, I was really... No, God knows everything about us. And this is where shame kicks in. Shame is, is the man who, who had his parents growing up who, who said, you're never going to amount to anything. And shame is when that man is trying to work so hard to show, hey, I can amount to something. Shame is where you have a teenage girl who is so obsessed by her looks because of the things that she reads in the newspapers and in the magazines. And because of the way that the kids say things to her about the way she looks. And, and the little girl has, has, has all these issues because of these identity issues. That's shame. Shame is where a guy gets fired from a job, but he can't tell anybody he got fired. 
So he says, you know, I was, I was downsized or my, my job was phased out because there's shame involved with acknowledging I lost my job. Shame is, shame is the guy who always feels like he has to name drop. He walks into a setting, he's got to say, oh, I know this person and I know that person because ultimately they feel insecure because they haven't accomplished as much. And so they start name dropping to make themselves feel just a little bit better. Shame, shame is when you're in school and you have that little uncoordinated boy who, who, who isn't very good at sports and is always picked last on the sports team. That's what that boy feels because he knows that nobody wants him on his team. And he knows that if his team loses, the team's going to blame him. That's where shame kicks in. Shame, shame is when you have women who are treated as objects and not as, as creations of God. That's when shame overcomes the woman, a feeling I have no value other than just being an object for someone else's pleasure. Shame is when bankruptcy is looming and, and you have this, this, this feeling of, of, man, how have I messed this up so badly that I've got to go and file bankruptcy? Shame is when you've got the bills due and you can't afford them and you've got to go and ask for help to say, I'm in a bad situation. Can you come and just help me out to get out of this? That's where shame kicks in. Shame is, is when we as parents, when we want to only focus on the good about our kids and we, we view our kids as being angels that they could do no wrong because somehow we've got to show validation to other parents. Look how great my kids are because I'm such a great person because I'm trying to show that I'm a good parent because there's shame involved if we aren't perfect and don't have it all together. Shame is when, the, when there's the addiction that kicks in. And we say, well, well, I'm never going to become addicted. I'm never going to become addicted until we find ourselves in that situation where there's that addiction. And you realize, man, that's, that's, that's shame. Shame is when you and I had the person that we've hated, the person who violated us, the person who did that thing that haunts us to this day. And we know, we know the Bible says we're supposed to forgive them. But deep down, we haven't. There's that hatred. And there's shame that comes in that because we know we haven't done what we're supposed to do. Shame is, is that man who's addicted to porn. An hour after hour, he's disgusted with himself. But it's going to happen. He goes back to his phone, goes back to his computer. Shame, shame is that new mom dealing with postpartum depression. And the doctor says, hey, I need to get you some help. Let's, let's talk through this. But the mom looks around at all the other moms who all have it together, who aren't struggling as she is, and she feels shame because she's in this season of struggle because of that. Shame is that person with social anxiety who could hardly stand being in public because they feel inferior and insecure around other people. Listen, when we deal with who we really are, man, there's shame in that. If we were to take that deep down secret of who we are and put it out in public, and none of us want that, which is why we play the game of, of putting on a look, of only allowing people into a part of our lives and not showing them deeply who we are. There's no quick fix to our shame. There's no, there's no way that we can quickly make it better. Like, like getting the new car doesn't fix what's gone wrong in your life. Increasing your net worth doesn't fix what goes wrong with your wife. Telling, a pastor telling you just to get over it doesn't fix that shame in your life. 
But what I love about it is God's going to begin to, David's going to begin to explain to us, man, how do we, how do we deal with that? Because here's, here's what he says in verse 5. He says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. So here David has just said, listen, listen, God knows everything about you. God knows all those things that would bring you shame. And what he just says here is number two for us, that God accepts us just as we are. God accepts you just as you are. See, when it says uh, laying his hand upon him, in the Old Testament, laying your hand on somebody was, was uh, uh, to bestow a blessing of them, was to offer protection, was to identify somebody as being distinct, identify them as being unique to that person, set apart. You see this same thing today. Today we have these, these visible, uh, physical things that we do. When we give somebody a fist bump, when you give them a high five, when we give them a hug. Like that's a sign of saying, hey, hey, I'm bestowing a blessing upon you. I'm offering relationship to you. You are distinct to me. You are important to me. I think about the first time I held my wife's hand. I'm holding her hand. And what's really crazy is, is, is my son Cameron's 15 years old. That's like, like it wasn't that much. I wasn't that much older than Cameron the first time I held my wife's hand. Is that weird to think about? A little bit. When I held my wife's hand, it was, it, it was signaling something to Samantha. It was signaling to say, hey, I'm blessing you to be able to be with me. It was me saying, hey, I'm offering you my protection. You are, are set apart from, from everybody else. And so this idea of, of laying your hand on somebody is it, a significant thing. It's, it's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm accepting you. I'm, I'm extending my, my relationship to you. And it's, it's important with dealing our identity with shame. And, and this is where I think it can become a little bit scandalous for us to understand this. And I want you to, I want you, I want you to hear this. And I want you to hear this. I want you to believe this. That even though God knows us just as we are, even though God knows your deepest, darkest secrets in life, who you really are, God's laying his hands on you, signals that he accepts you, that he loves you. That all those things that we want to hide, all those things that we are afraid people will reject us and bring shame to us. Listen, God sees those things. He still lays his hand upon us, bestows his blessing and his relationship and says, I love you and I invite you to be my child. And not only does David say God lays his hand upon us, but David says God hems us in behind and before this is the idea if you've ever been a gardener and you, and, you, and you build like a raised bed, okay? You plant that garden in that raised bed and it kind of sets the boundaries. Like that garden can't go beyond the boundaries. It can't go past the boundary in front. It can't go past the, I mean, it's, it's, it's hemmed in. And this is the idea that, that, that we are hemmed in by God, that we are enveloped by his loving care. Despite how much we try, we can't turn back and escape God's acceptance of us. Despite how hard we try, we can't go forward and outmarch God's grace. We are hemmed in on every side. Our life is contained within God's grace. As much as we fight it, we are contained by his grace. In fact, Julian of Norwich, who was from the 4th, 14th century, he said this. He said, our courteous Lord does not want his servants to despair because they fall often grievously. How many of us are in that situation? 
we fall, sometimes we fall really bad. And he says, our falling does not hinder him loving us. Isn't that good to know? Isn't that great to understand? I think about this. My, many of you know I've talked about this. My dad died when I was young. And I had a big brother who was eight years older than I was. And he's the big brother, right? And so this is what happens. It is little brothers look up to the big brothers. Little brothers, especially when they don't have a dad around, they look up to, they idolize that big brother. They want to be like that big brother. And I remember my brother uh, was, uh, was, uh, went on a mission, was gone for two years. And I uh, was coming back and I was a baseball player. And he was going to come back and one of the first things he was going to do was come to my baseball game, my Little League baseball game, Cincinnati Reds, Yakima. I loved it, loved baseball. And he was coming to the game. And I remember I was going to have a good game. I was going to show him, look, brother, look, I'm good. I got some skill. And I remember when I first at bats, I hit my only little league home run. Like, how exciting is that? My brother's here, and I hit a home run for him. And I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm going to show him even more. And I was playing third base, and I'm sitting there, and there's a foul ball coming my way. And I'm like, I'm going to catch the foul ball. He's going to think I'm amazing. And so I'm looking at this foul ball. I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. And I'm not looking at where I'm going. And I find a fence. Face first. And my, 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 my head hits the fence. And I fall back and I'm unconscious. I'm like out of it. I'm, I've gone to sleep, you know. And, 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 and I remember this game. Because the game got over. And there's chain link on my face. Like you can see the marks from where I hit. And my brother's there and he's got a big red Gatorade. He's got a bag of... of uh, little league shoe, big league shoe. And it was this idea of, of, listen, I don't care if you run into a fence. I love you. I accept you. I don't care that you embarrass me. I love you, man. And this is the way that God looks at us. That we fall sometimes horribly. And we do things that would normally bring shame. Yet God's hand is still upon us. God's acceptance is still on us. God's grace and his love is still there. Even though he knows who we are deep down. God's grace and his love is there. And our deepest brokenness, the things that we're afraid to let be known. And we, we, we try to hide, we try to mask. And we try and change those things on our own. It's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. I mean, you can put lipstick on a pig, try and make it look pretty. It's still a pig. But you see, when you look into God's mirror for your identity, God looks past the lipstick. He sees, hey, you're still a pig. But God loves that pig. God accepts that pig. God offers that pig a new life. God offers that pig an opportunity to be a son and a daughter of God. He loves us as we really are deep down and how do we respond to that love how do we respond to the fact that god knows us just as we are and that god still accepts us just as we are verse six david says such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high i cannot attain it see number three for us this morning number one god knows us just as we are Number two, God accepts us just as we are. Number three, God amazes me just as he is. 
you know, we often think, well, God, you know, God's got these bigger things to worry about. You know, there's all these world problems going in our world today. There's, there's famine, there's disease, there's war. There's all these things going on. Like, 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 God doesn't care about the little details of my life. Like, he's got too much to worry about. And here's the fact that God cares about the smallest details of our days. And David says, this is, is too wonderful for me. It, it's beyond comprehension. I can't attain it. I can't understand it. I can't grasp the fact that God knows all of this about me and still loves me. I can't just wrap my mind around it because it's too wonderful. It's too awesome. It's too amazing. The fact that, that, that who I really am deep down, God knows that and God still loves me. And we can come to church and we can talk about it and we can, you know, we can mentally, okay, I get that. I get that God loves me just as I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how quickly do we forget it? How often time do we come to church and say, yes, I get it. God loves me just as I am. I don't have to be anybody else. I can be just who I'm created to be. And then we show up to work on Monday morning. We show up to school on Monday morning. We begin to say, oh, man, look at everybody else around me. And you begin to change that. And you forget this idea that God accepts me just as I am. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. And he, summarizing, he says, as high as I can get. This truth that God knows me just as I am and God accepts me and loves me in that same spot. He says that truth is too lofty for my mind. It always seems up there above me. And even when I soar to the highest uh, religious spiritual thought, I still can't quite grasp and understand it. Isn't it the same way with every attribute of God? That we can, we can uh, never really attain uh, the, the true idea of his, his wisdom and his, and his power and his holiness. Like we can get glimpses of it, but when we understand and try and understand, it's almost too wonderful for us, wonderful for us to, to, to really grasp. See, when we understand this, there's kind of a couple different responses to understanding that God loves us this way. He knows us just as we are. Sometimes we can begin to question God. I think rather, the proper response to understanding how God feels about us is, is to respond with belief and adoration. That God knows us just as we are. God accepts us just as we are. And it amazes us. And I think the proper response for us is belief in who he is and adoration for what he's done. Because here, we've got to understand God knows everything about us. God knows your quirky personality. God knows your, your struggles and your sin. God knows the thing that brings you shame in your life. And listen, he still loves you enough to die for you. There's no better feeling in the world. There's no better feeling in the world to know that we are completely known. <laughs> Yet we are still completely loved and accepted. Listen, don't fight him on this. So many times that's what we do. We fight them on this. Don't fight them on this. Sometimes we want to believe, you know, we're not good enough for God to accept us. We're not good enough for, for God's love to, to be there with us. But listen, God loves us and God loved you before you knew him. God loved you and planned to save you before we even realized that we needed saving. That's what Romans chapter 5 says. Paul wrote and said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. 
Don't run away from this idea that you are known just as you are. That you are loved and accepted just as you are. Because listen, when we understand this idea that we are completely known by God, listen, do you know how free it is to know that we are known by God and still loved by Him? It is a freeing thing for us to, to build our identity that we are known and accepted by God because no longer do we have to try and just put that good face out to everybody. No longer do we have to try and hide these things away and hold on to them and say, I don't want anyone to know about this. No, God says, hey, I've seen the worst of you and I still loved you and accept you. And doesn't that free us from trying to live the rat race and trying to, to show people just the good side? That's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it is completely freeing for us to know that God knows us just as we are and God loves us just as we are. A couple ways I think there's a way to respond to this message today. First, some of us probably just need to believe this. Been in the season where you're wrestling with your identity and, and realizing, man, how much of who I am is tied into what other people think about me. Like their influence changes how I think and how I act and how I dress and how I talk and all these things. What if you were just to believe today that God knows you just as you are? You don't have to put the lipstick on. That you can just be the way that God created you and that you are accepted and loved in that. Maybe that's for you today. Maybe you just need to say today, God, would you help me to believe this? Just help me to embrace it and understand it. And, and not just believe it mentally, but believe it in my heart. Allow it to impact my life. Maybe for some of us today, maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to say, God, I'm sorry. I've been looking in the wrong mirror. I've been allowing everything else to influence my identity. But God, I haven't built my identity on you. So maybe today is the time for you to say, God, I'm sorry for that. God, I'm sorry I've looked elsewhere for my identity. Maybe for you, maybe today is a time for celebration. That you can praise God that there's freedom in being loved by Him. There's freedom in knowing that you are accepted by Him. And lastly, man, think about the power of this message. The power of this idea that God knows us just as we are. Like, who is it around you that needs to hear that? Because we live in a society that is built and allowing the culture to define us. Who's that person that we need to take this life-changing message of God's love and acceptance to? That they could find freedom. Would you pray with me? God, just thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace on us. Thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. And God, what we've done here today is we didn't just come and, and hear a pastor's thoughts. God, we heard your word being taught. And God, I pray that you help us just not to, to come in and hear it. God, you help us to internalize it. You help us to understand it, to believe it. God, we know that your word does not return void. So God, I pray as you are rustling in our hearts of God, what this message means for us today. God, you help us to begin to to even look in our own lives and see where's our identity built upon. So our identity is not what we do. 
Our identity is based on you and your acceptance of us. So God, I pray that you help us to be a people who will build our identity looking to the mirror of your word. Looking to the mirror of God and not the mirror of the culture around us. That God, those of us that, that deal with that shame, that God, you would set us free. Because God, even in the midst of that embarrassing thing, even in the midst of that shame, God, you have placed your hand upon us to accept us and to love us and to hem us in to protect us. God, I pray that you help us to wrestle with this. For those of us in here today that just need to believe it, God, I pray that that would be their prayer today. God, help me to believe this. Help me to to understand this. That, God, I'm not, my identity is not based on the way people see me and the way people view me. My identity is based on the way that you see me, God. God, I pray for those in here today that need to repent, that they would take this time just to cry out to you to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that my identity has been built on, on, on my work. It's been built on my social media presence. It's been built on all these other things. God, I'm sorry for that. God, today I'm coming back to say, God, my identity is going to be built on you. For those of us in here today, you just need to take that time and, and celebrate that we have freedom, that we don't have to allow the world to influence, that we can walk free of shame we can stand up here today and we can sing these songs and we can praise you because God you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise and God I pray that we begin to realize God how it is that we're supposed to know you and to make you known God we've got this amazing message of the gospel of forgiveness of salvation and God you've sent us as witnesses into our workplaces, into our schools, into our neighborhoods to take that message that others would experience that freedom as well. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your presence on us now. God, I pray that you help us to respond appropriately. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask this in your name. Amen.